let me uh, add my welcome to Ashley's and let's pray together now as we approach God's word. You, God, are our God. Earnestly we seek you. We thirst for you. With our whole being, we long for you. And as we turn our, our faces to you, as we look to you in eagerness to hear your word, we pray that you would make yourself known to us again. Prepare our hearts to receive your word. Purify them. Make them good soil. That we would be ready to listen, ready to receive ready to trust, to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so I was um, back home last weekend to see my family, and it was great to see my sister-in-law pregnant uh, with their first child. Uh, she's already got a, a, a big belly. She's due in a couple of months. And uh, they are already planning for the coming of the baby. They're getting baby clothes, a baby bed, all the other stuff you get when you're waiting for a baby. Some people will know more about that than me. And my brother and his wife do whatever they can to get ready for, for this event. They um, ask their parents and relatives around them for advice. They read around the topic, etc., etc. Having a, a first child is a massive event in one's life, an event for which you prepare very carefully. And our text tells us about an event of much greater significance. Not just for a few individuals, but for the whole world. The return of Jesus, the King, the Son of Man, the consummation of the kingdom of God. An event that requires careful preparation. And so how do you prepare for this cosmic event? Well, that's what we're going to see together tonight with uh, two points. Our first point is that the king is yet unseen, but don't be deceived. And our second point, that the king will be revealed, so don't look back on the world. So first, uh, verses 20 to 25, the king is unseen, don't be deceived. And with um, the first two verses, verses 20 and 21, we see that the kingdom is already here with King Jesus. The kingdom is already here with King Jesus. The text begins with a question from the Pharisees in verse 20, asking when the kingdom of God would come. Now, in order to understand Jesus' answer, uh, we need to understand first what they had in mind when they asked about the kingdom of God. For the Pharisees, and for most Jews at the time, the coming of the kingdom meant the restoration of the kingdom of Israel the earthly kingdom. It meant the destruction of all their enemies, and chiefly in first century, it was the Romans who had invaded the region. They expected the kingdom to come with great signs in the sky and on the earth, something dramatic, something spectacular. And as Jesus answers their question, he challenges their understanding. First, he says, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. The word translated as observed here alludes to a general apocalyptic sign that can be seen. 
The kingdom of God is not coming with cosmic signs in the sky and on the earth, not in spectacular ways. Second, he, sends, second, he says, uh, no will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Verse 20. The kingdom of God is not something to be hunted for like people mining for gold, because the kingdom is right here already. Jesus is here tying himself very closely with the kingdom of God. Jesus is the king. He's in his presence is the kingdom of God already. The healings and exorcism that Jesus performed testify to the reality of the kingdom coming with Jesus. If you remember the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 11, verse 20, he said this, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And we've just read in our passage and seen in the healing of the ten lepers a manifestation of the kingdom right here. The kingdom is already here in the presence of Jesus the King. But the Pharisees don't see that reality. They have seen the miracles of Jesus, but it's not enough for them. In truth, Jesus looked nothing like the kind of king they were waiting for. They were expecting a powerful, conquering king. Now, if we're honest, Jesus looks maybe a bit lame for a king. He's coming from an insignificant town. He looks like a normal bloke. Yet he's done some miraculous things, he's got a, a decent following, but he doesn't have the stature of a man who can take arms and lead a rebellion against the Roman Empire, take control of Jerusalem and establish the kingdom of Israel again. But the Pharisees deceive themselves because they, think, because they thought that uh, Jesus didn't look enough like a king. They dismissed him and they missed the reality that the kingdom was already here. They didn't see the king, they missed the kingdom. And they didn't see the king because they didn't have faith. See the contrast with the leper from the previous section in verses 15 and 16, who after having been healed, he came back praising God with a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. He had just been healed by Jesus and sees by faith what the other lepers missed as well, that Jesus is the Savior King sent by God the Father. And so Jesus says to this man in verse 18, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Sorry, verse 19, your faith has made you well, which could also be translated as your faith has saved you. By faith, he recognized the king and received entry into his kingdom. So what do you see when you look at Jesus? Do you think that Jesus is lacking the panache, the charisma, the impressiveness of a king? Don't be deceived by first appearances. If you miss the king, you will miss the kingdom as well. But if you can look beyond initial appearances and by faith confess that Jesus is indeed the king, you will be welcomed into that kingdom. 
that already present kingdom like the Samaritan was. Then Jesus continues in verses 22 to 25 and warns his disciples of fake messiahs. So beware of fake messiahs, verses 22 to 25. Jesus turns to his disciples. They have seen that Jesus is the king. But Jesus warns them of a day when they will not see him anymore, when the king will be unseen to them, and when they will long to see him again. And so verse 22, he says, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. They will desire to see Jesus in his kingly rule over all creation. That's what the name Son of Man is about. They will desire to see the full manifestation of the kingdom of God. The title Son of Man refers to the vision uh, we just read about earlier in Daniel 17. This man who receives dominion, authority, power over all creation, who will establish the kingdom of God forever. And this Son of Man is Jesus, but the day of his visible reign is not yet. And there will come a day when his disciples will long for that day, for that day when Christ is revealed in all his power and glory, when his kingdom is seen by all. And the days of longing have come. We are into them. Our king is in heaven, unseen to us. But we are already part of his kingdom, of that reality. We, the church, are outposts of this kingdom here on earth. Yet we are still waiting for the consummation of this kingdom when Jesus comes again. We are waiting for this great wedding banquet of the kingdom that Jesus talked about so much in chapter 14 in Luke's gospel. But in their eagerness, the disciples must be careful lest they be deceived. And so Jesus tells them in verse 23, people will tell you there is or here is. Don't go running off after them. Since Jesus ascended into heaven, many people have claimed to be the Messiah, to bring about the eternal kingdom. On the Wikipedia page, list of Messiah claimants, yes, there is such a list, it's quite interesting, I've counted 26 people who have claimed or still claim today to be Jesus returned since the 18th century. Several of them are still alive today. And that's not counting the many Jewish Messiah claimants, the many Muslim Messiah claimants, and a whole host of other Messiah claimants who don't fit neatly into any of uh, the major religions. Now, you might think like myself, ah, come on, I'll never be deceived by these kind of guys. Like, it's so obvious they're all nutters. But the reality is that many of them attract a significant following. We must be careful not to be deceived. And the reality is that there are not only religious messiahs in the world, but there are also secular ones. Political or industry leaders who claim to be able to bring about heaven on earth, a mimic of the kingdom of God. Communism in the 20th century is a great example of that. How many treated Lenin and Stalin as messiahs 
who would bring humanity into a new age of perfection. We must beware of any person or ideology that claims today to be able to bring God's kingdom or an equivalent of God's kingdom on earth. Today, many leaders of big tech companies think that they can bring about heaven on earth through technologies. Many believe in them, follow them, invest their money into them. They set all their hopes into these things. And maybe that's what some of you are doing. Setting your hope on a political party or leader or on some cutting-edge technology or some cool-looking Silicon Valley inventor. People tend to give credit to all these different people and ideologies because they are attractive. Often these people are charismatic and smart people. And these things are attractive because we all long for what the kingdom of God represents. Justice, peace, end of suffering, end of death, fullness of life. Yet our world is looking for it in all the wrong places, in all the wrong people. And it is always deceived and disappointed. Only Jesus and his kingdom can give us that. These are all fake messiahs. Don't go running after them, Jesus says. Jesus Christ alone will bring the perfection of the kingdom. So wait for him patiently. Don't be deceived. For when he comes, no one will be able to miss him. That's what he says in verse 24. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. The unseen king will be plainly revealed to all. So there's no point giving credit to rumors that Jesus has come back here or there. When he comes, you won't miss it. So don't be deceived. And like the Pharisees, Jesus' disciples were longing for the kingdom of God in the sense of the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And there are hints in the Gospels that uh, they too hoped that uh, when Jesus was going to Jerusalem, that he was going to sit on the throne in the city of the kings. Notice how Luke reminds us that we are on the way to Jerusalem in verse 11. In the disciples' heads, they are going to Jerusalem to see Jesus establish the kingdom with great Power and might. So Jesus sets their expectations right in verse 25. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Before the glory of the king and the kingdom is fully manifested, it is necessary for the king to be humiliated, rejected, to suffer and die. If Jesus didn't look like a king enough to the Pharisees at this point, he will look even less like a king when he will be hanging on a cross. But he warns his disciples now that this is part of the plan. This is not the plan gone wrong. This is part of the plan. Before the Son of Man comes in glory, it is necessary for him to suffer. He must suffer because... That is what the Old Testament scriptures had foretold through prophecies and types. But also because it is only through the suffering and death of the king that the kingdom of God 
can have people into it and be filled. It is only as the king pays himself the price for the sins of those who have faith in him that they can become citizens of this eternal, perfect kingdom. This suffering Messiah is the only true Messiah, the true king. He has suffered. He has been rejected. All that's left to happen now is his return. And to prepare for that day, so first you must not be deceived either by appearances or by fake messiahs, but trust in Jesus. See him as the king and wait patiently for him. What will happen on that day when the Son of Man will be revealed? How more to be ready? Well, that's our second point. The king will be revealed. Don't look back. The king will be revealed. Don't look back. Verses 26 to 37. Jesus wants his disciples to be prepared for that day when he comes again. So he tells them what it will be like when he comes and how to face the day. So what will it be like when he comes? Verses 26 to 30. Jesus uses the example of the days of Noah and of Lot in verses 26 to 29 to explain uh, the days of the Son of Man. The days of the Son of Man, in plural, are the days before the day, singular, of the Son of Man, when he is revealed. And I believe that these days have started with Christ's resurrection and ascension, as Christ has already received authority in heaven and on earth, through, uh, though his reign is still unseen. So what will life be like before this great day of the Son of Man? Well, just like it has always been, or almost. Verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage. And verse 28, it was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating, drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. People were going about their lives in complete insouciance of the cataclysm that was about to fall on them. It was business as usual. People were enjoying their lives. People were planning for the future, investing. People were assuming that life would go on forever. As it was yesterday, it is today, and it will be tomorrow. But that was a deadly assumption to make. Because suddenly, the flood came and destroyed them all. In the case of the people of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. No more eating, no more drinking, no more buying, no more selling. Complete destructions. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed, verse 30. The destruction will be total and complete. It's emphasized twice by Jesus in verse 27 and 29, and destroyed them all. There will be no escape on that day for those who live in ignorance of Jesus the King and his kingdom. Because they don't see the king today, they presume that he does not exist and that life will go on forever, a faulty assumption that leads to destruction. 
This is the assumption that our world world believes in. People live their lives as if they and the world they know will be here forever. Business as usual, people do their stuff and plan for the future in complete ignorance of Christ and his kingdom. And if that is the way you live your life, I wonder what you make of Jesus' words here. Jesus doesn't understand the floods or the destruction of Sodom to be myths or tales for children. They are historical events that point forward to a greater destruction, a greater judgment when Jesus comes again. And their example is here to serve as a warning, especially to you if you don't trust in Jesus yet, nor are part of his kingdom. Do you assume that life will go on forever? Is your horizon limited to the visible realities of the earth? If you do, you are in for a big surprise and not a nice one. But there is hope. There is hope. Noah and Lot both were spared. You also can be spared. If you set your heart on Christ, on his kingdom, if you turn to him in faith, you can also be spared. Don't make a foolish mistake. Of course, the danger is there for us as well as Christians to be caught up in the business of this world so much that we lose sight of the ultimate reality of Christ and his kingdom. That we become so busy participating in the life of this world and planning for the future that we don't even long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. We forget that Christ already reigns today, that we are in the days of the Son of Man. Because his reign is still invisible, it's easy to forget about it, to dismiss it. But Christ is on his throne today, and it will be revealed and fully manifested when he comes again. And so to prepare for that day, well, it's quite simple. Don't look back. Verses 31 to 33. On that day, no one who is on the housetop, I read from verse 31, with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. In verse 31, Jesus states that there's no point trying to save your stuff on that day because all will be destroyed. More than that, trying to save your stuff betrays where your heart truly lies. Lot's wife is a prime example of that. To give you a bit of the backstory, angels had grabbed Lot and his family to get him out of Sodom before it was too late. And these angels gave them instructions as they left them. I read from Genesis chapter 19, verse 17. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Don't look back. And don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. And a few verses later, we read just after the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 26. But Lot's wife looked back 
and she became a pillar of salt. So Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Such a powerful short verse. Three words, remember Lot's wife. Remember that verse, learn it, meditate on it. Remember Lot's wife. Spurgeon, commenting on that verse, said, she looked, she longed, she lingered, and she died. You see, the issue is not the look itself, but the heart behind it. A heart that longed for the things of the world. A heart that looked back with regret concerning what's left behind. A heart that misses Sodom already. Jesus is saying here that if your heart is set on the world rather than on Jesus and his kingdom, you will have no part in his coming kingdom. That's what it means to look back on the world. And we see this attitude again in verse 33. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Those who try to keep their life are trying to preserve and maintain their life in the world. They do all they can to preserve their possessions, their status, their achievements. They do all they can to save it all because that is what is most precious to them. Like Lot's wife, they want to hold on to what they have in the world. If they had to choose between Jesus and the world, well, deep down they would prefer the world, even though they might not say it. On the opposite, those who lose their life and who will preserve it are those who are ready to give it all up for Jesus and his kingdom, who are ready to suffer to the point of death for his sake. They do not count their life and possessions in the world as more valuable than the world to come, this great kingdom. Are you risking your job by holding on to a Christian ethics? Are you sacrificing an amazing job opportunity because you know it will prevent you from having the time to care for your family, to love and serve your church? Are you saying no to a relationship because you want to follow God's pattern for marriage between a man and a woman and between two believers? Are you holding off from fancy holidays because you want to be able to give more to the work of the gospel? Remember the words of Jesus, whoever loses their life will preserve it and be encouraged. The sacrifices are not vain. They are not pointless. But what should be then our attitude towards the world and especially the good things of the world? Does that mean that we're not allowed to enjoy anything in this world? Well, when I lived back in France, I used to go hiking in the Alps every summer. I love the Alps. They are majestic, rocky, steep, high. But throughout the year, I would uh, often go hiking in the local mountains where I'm from, in the east of France. They're called uh, the Vosges. And they are really more glorified hills than mountains, I have to say. They are much, much smaller than the Alps. But they are still nice. And, and when I walked there, I enjoyed it. I was thankful for it. But at the same time, I was already looking for the summer when I will be able to go to the Alps. I was longing for the real deal for the greater, more majestic mountains. 
And so it is for us Christians with the good things of this world. We enjoy them and we are thankful for them as God's good gifts to us. But yet, even as we enjoy them, we long and we look forward to the greater reality, the ultimate reality of God's kingdom. We have this eternal perspective. And you know what? When I travel to the Alps and when they are finally in sight, I never look back with a pinch of regret on my heart at the tiny mountains from home behind me. No, I don't look back because my gaze is captured by the majestic vision of these snowy peaks touching the clouds. And so it will be for those who love Jesus when he comes again. They will be so filled with awe and love at the glory and majesty of their King and Savior that there will be no looking back. There will be no looking back. But are you running the risk of looking back? Well, let me ask you one diagnostic question. If Jesus were to come back now, would you be sad to leave the world behind? Would you be sad about not having had the time to get married, to get your dream job, but not being able to see the end of a project you'd been working hard for so long? Sad to leave behind all the money and stuff you've worked so hard to gain. Sad that you've not had the time to travel to all these beautiful places. If the thought of Jesus coming gives you a twinge of regret that you won't be able to enjoy the world anymore, well, either you just don't really understand the glory, the beauty and perfection of the kingdom of God that is coming, or you are loving the world more than Jesus. And if that is the case, you are in a dangerous position. And let me plead with you to repent of that, to set your heart on Christ and his kingdom, to seek his face, to pray fervently to him, to, to ask God to purge your heart from a love of the world, to give you a pure love for Christ, to make you long more deeply for his coming. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about being sad because you have close ones who don't trust in Jesus yet. That's not what being like Lot's wife is about. She suddenly wasn't concerned at all about the spiritual welfare of Sodom. It's about looking back on the world with longing and regret. The way you relate to your life in the world now says a lot about where you will look on the final day. Will you look at Jesus with love, with joy, with relief? Or will you look back on the world with regret and longing? So the conclusion of Jesus' discourse is that there will be a great separation on that day, verses 34 and 35. Humanity will be divided into two. Those who will go to destruction and those who will stay to be with Jesus. The separation is not made on geographical ground. The separation is on the ground of where you stand respective to Jesus and the world. And it cuts through the closest of relationships. Do you love Jesus more than the world? Then you will be left to be with him in his kingdom and you will be spared judgment 
If you don't, then you will be taken for judgment. That is the picture of verse 37. The disciples ask, where will they be taken? Well, the answer is to death, to destruction, symbolized by being eaten by vultures. It's a gruesome picture, but it's not too late yet to find refuge in Jesus from that day of destruction. It's not too late yet. My brother and his wife are preparing with great care for the coming of their baby girl, a preparation filled with longing. How much more should we prepare ourselves with great care for the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus, the King of the world? How should we prepare? Well, first, by recognizing that Jesus alone is King and Messiah without being deceived either by appearances or by fake messiahs. And second, by continually setting our hearts on Jesus and his kingdom, such that we won't look back on the world. This great day is coming. So let us wait for it patiently and with great longing. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are sobered by the reality of the judgment that is coming, that you will bring upon the earth. We express to you our most heartfelt gratitude for your Son, Jesus Christ, he who came to suffer, to be rejected, to die, to spare us this judgment. We thank you for this grace that we do not deserve. And Father, we pray for any person in this room yet who is not ready for that day. And we pray that even tonight, they would come to recognize Jesus as King and turn to Him, put their trust in Him. So that with us and like Noah and Lot were in their days, they will be spared the coming judgment. And Father, we pray for ourselves that you would help us to keep a close watch on our hearts, that we wouldn't set our hearts on the things of the world, but on Christ and his kingdom. That as every day passes until his coming, we would grow in our longing, in our desire to see him in his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.